0: SECTION 39 OF THE LIFE OF SAMUEL JOHNSON, Volume 1, by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE IDLER, ANNO DOMINI, 1758 On the 15th of April he began a new periodical paper entitled The Idler. Footnote. A paper under this name had been started seven years earlier. See Carter and Talbot correspondence in footnote. Which came out every Saturday in a weekly newspaper called the Universal Chronicle or Weekly Gazette, published by Newbury. Footnote: In the two years in which Johnson wrote for this paper, it saw many changes. The first Idler appeared in number two of the Universal Chronicle or Weekly Gazette, which was published not by Newbury but by J. Payne. On April the twenty-ninth, this paper took the title of. Payne's universal Chronicle etc on january the sixth seventeen fifty nine it resumed the old title and was published by R. Stevens on January fifth seventeen sixty The title was changed to the Universal Chronicle and Westminster journal and it was published by W. Fadden and R. Stevens on March the fifteenth seventeen sixty was published by R. Stevens alone. The paper consisted of eight pages. The idler which varied in length came first and was printed in larger characters much like a leading article the changes in title and ownership seem to show that in spite of johnson's contributions it was not a successful publication end of footnote these essays were continued till april 5th 1760 of one hundred and three, their total number, twelve were contributed by his friends, of which numbers thirty three ninety three and ninety six were written by Mr. Thomas Wharton number sixty seven by Mr Langton, and number seventy six seventy nine and eighty two by Sir Joshua Reynolds. The concluding words of number eighty two and pollute his canvas with deformity being added by johnson as sir joshua informed me those papers may be considered as a kind of syllabus of all reynolds's future discourses and certainly occasioned him some thinking in their composition i have heard him say that johnson required them from him on a sudden emergency and on that account he sat up the whole night to complete them in time and by it he was so much disordered that it produced a vertigo in his head, Northcote's Reynolds Reynolds must have spoken of only one paper as the three appearing as they did on september twenty ninth October the twentieth, and November the tenth could not have been required at the one time. End of the idler is evidently the work of the same mind which produced the rambler but has less body and more spirit. It has more variety of real life and greater facility of language. He describes the miseries of idleness with the lively sensations of one who has felt them. To be idle and to be poor have always been reproaches, and therefore every man endeavours with his utmost care to hide his poverty from others, And his idleness from himself The Idler number seventeen and a footnote and in his private memorandums while engaged in it we find this year I hope to learn diligence prayers and meditations page thirty thirty six Boswell and a footnote Many of these excellent essays were written as hastily as an ordinary letter. Mr. Langton remembers Johnson when, on a visit at Oxford, footnote, in July, footnote, asking him one evening how long it was till the post went out, and on being told about half an hour, he exclaimed, Then we shall do very well. He upon this instantly sat down and finished an idler which it was necessary should be in London the next day mr langton having signified a wish to read it sir said he you shall not do more than i have done myself he then folded it up and sent it off yet there are in the idler several papers which show as much profundity of thought and labour of language as any of this great man's writings number 14 robbery of time number 24 thinking number 41 death of a friend footnote This number was published a few days after his mother's death. It is in the form of a letter which is thus introduced. The following letter relates to an affliction perhaps not necessary to be imparted to the public, but I could not persuade myself to suppress it, because I think I know the sentiments to be sincere, and I feel no disposition to provide for this day any other entertainment. End footnote. Number forty three Flight of Time Number fifty one Domestic Greatness Unattainable Number fifty two Self Denial Number fifty eight Actual How short of fancied excellence note. In the Table of Contents the title of number fifty eight is Expectations of Pleasure Frustrated In the original edition of the Idler no titles are given. In this paper he shows that NOTHING IS MORE HOPELESS THAN A SCHEME OF MERRIMENT. 89. PHYSICAL EVIL MORAL GOOD. IN THIS PAPER HE BEGINS BY CONSIDERING, WHY THE ONLY THINKING BEING OF THIS GLOBE IS DOOMED TO THINK, MERELY TO BE WRETCHED, AND TO PASS HIS TIME FROM YOUTH TO AGE IN FEARING, OR IN SUFFERING, CALAMITIES. He ends by asserting that of what virtue there is misery produces far the greater part. End of and his concluding paper on the horror of the last. Footnote. There are few things, he writes, not purely evil of which we can say without some emotion of uneasiness this is the last. The secret horror of the last is inseparable from a thinking being whose life is limited, and to whom death is dreadful. We'll prove this assertion. I know not why a motto, the usual trapping of periodical papers, is prefixed to very few of the idlers, as I have heard Johnson commend the custom. And he never could be at a loss for one, his memory being stored with innumerable passages of the classics. I asked him one day why the idlers were published without mottos. He replied that it was forborne the better to conceal himself and escape discovery. But let us think of some now, said he, for the next edition. We can fit the two volumes in two hours, can't we? accordingly he recollected and i wrote down these following in parentheses nine mottos till some friend coming in in about five minutes put an end to our further progress on the subject piozzi letters end of footnote. influence of the weather anno domini 1758 in this series of essays he exhibits admirable instances of grave humour of which he had an uncommon share. Nor on some occasions has he repressed that power of sophistry which he possessed in so eminent a degree. In number eleven he treats with the utmost contempt the opinion that our mental faculties depend in some degree upon the weather, an opinion which they who have never experienced its truth are not to be envied and of which he himself could not but be sensible, as the effects of weather upon him were very visible. Yet thus he declaims, Surely nothing is more reproachful to a being endowed with reason than to resign its powers to the influence of the air, and live in dependence on the weather and the wind for the only blessings which nature has put into our power, tranquillity and benevolence. This distinction of seasons is produced only by imagination operating on luxury. To temperance every day is bright, and every hour is propitious to diligence. He that shall resolutely excite his faculties or exert his virtues, will soon make himself superior to the seasons, and may set at defiance the morning mist and the evening damp, the blasts of the east and the clouds of the south. See post july the fourteenth and twenty sixth, seventeen sixty three, april the fourteenth, seventeen seventy five, and august the second, seventeen eighty-four. Note for instances in which Johnson ridicules the notion that weather and seasons have any necessary effect on man. Also april seventeenth, seventeen seventy eight. In the Life of Milton he writes This dependence of the soul upon the seasons, those temporary and periodical ebbs and flows of intellect, may I suppose justly be derided as the fumes of vain imagination. Sapiens dominabitur astro. The author that thinks himself weather-bound will find, with a little help from Hellebore, that he is only idle or exhausted. But while this notion has possession of the head, it produces the inability which it supposes. Our powers owe much of their energy to our hopes, Posunt, we quia posse vidento. Boswell records in his Hebrides, August sixteenth, seventeen 1773, that when somebody talked of happy moments for composition, Johnson said, Nay, a man may write at any time if he will set himself doggedly to it. Reynolds, who avowed how much he had learnt from Johnson, says much the same in his seventh discourse. But when in plain prose we gravely talk of courting the muse in shady bowers, waiting the call and inspiration of genius, of attending to times and seasons, when the imagination shoots with the greatest vigour, whether at the summer solstice or the vernal equinox, when we talk such language, or entertain such sentiments as these, we generally rest contented with mere words, or at best entertain notions not only groundless but pernicious. Reynolds's works. On the other hand, in 1773 Johnson recorded, Between Easter and Whitsuntide, having always considered that time as propitious to study, I attempted to learn the Low Dutch language. In the Rambler number 80 he says, To the men of study and imagination, the winter is generally the chief time of labour. Gloom and silence produce composure of mind and concentration of ideas. In a letter to Mrs. Thrale, written in 1775, he says, Most men have their bright and their cloudy days, at least they have days when they put their powers into act, and days when they suffer them to repose. Piozzi Letters. In 1781 he wrote, I thought myself above assistance or obstruction from the seasons, but find the autumnal blast sharp and nipping, and the fading world, an uncomfortable prospect. Again, in the last year of his life, he wrote, The weather, you know, has not been balmy. I am now reduced to think, and am at last content to talk of the weather. Pride must have a fall. August 2nd, 1784, end of footnote. I think the Romans call it Stoicism. Footnote. Addison's Cato, Act 1, Scene 4, Into footnote. The Attendance on a court, 49. But in this number of his idler his spirit seemed to run riot, for in the wantonness of his disquisition he forgets for a moment even the reverence for that which he held in high respect. Footnote. Johnson, reviewing the Duchess of Marlborough's attack on Queen Mary, says, This is a character so different from all those that have been hitherto given of this celebrated princess, that the reader stands in suspense, till he considers that it has hitherto had this great advantage, that it has only been compared with those of kings. End of footnote and describes the attendant on a court as one whose business is to watch the looks of a being weak and foolish as himself." Johnson had explained how it comes to pass that Englishmen talk so commonly of the weather. He continues, "'Such is the reason of our practice, and who shall treat it with contempt. Surely not the attendant on a court, whose business is to watch the looks of a being weak and foolish as himself, and whose vanity is to recount the names of men who might drop into nothing and believe no vacuity. The weather is a nobler and more interesting subject. It is the present state of the skies and of the earth on which plenty and famine are suspended, on which millions depend for the necessaries of life. Garrick complained that when he went to read before the court, not a look or a murmur testified approbation. There was a profound stillness. Every one only watched to see what the king thought. Hazlitt's Conversations at Northcote. End a footnote. Alas, it is too certain that where the frame has delicate fibres and there is a fine sensibility, such influences of the air are irresistible. He might as well have bid defines to the ague, the palsy, and all other bodily disorders. His unqualified ridicule of rhetorical gesture or action is not surely a test of truth, yet we cannot help admiring how well it is adapted to produce the effect which he wished. Neither the judges of our laws nor the representatives of our people will be much affected by laboured gesticulation, or believe any man the more because he rolled his eyes or puffed his cheeks or spread abroad his arms or stamped the ground or thumped his breast, or turned his eyes sometimes to the ceiling and sometimes to the floor. The Idler, number 90. See post-April, 3rd, 1773 where he declaims against action in public speaking. Johnson, not a plagiary, Anno Domini, 1758. A casual coincidence with other writers, or an adoption of a sentiment or image which has been found in the writings of another, and afterwards appears in the mind as one's own, is not unfrequent the richness of johnson's fancy which could supply his page abundantly on all occasions and the strength of his memory which at once detected the real owner of any thought made him less liable to the imputation of plagiarism than perhaps any of our writers he now and then repeats himself thus in the idler number thirty seven he moralizes on the story how socrates Passing through the fair at Athens, cried out, "How many things are here which I do not need?" Though he had already moralized on it in the Adventure numbers sixty-seven and one hundred nineteen. In the Idler, however, there is a paper in square brackets, number thirty-four, in which conversation is assimilated to a bowl of punch where there is the same train of comparison as in a poem by Blacklock, in his collection published in 1756, Footnote, Poems on several occasions, by Thomas Blacklock, page 179, See post August 5, 1763, and Boswell's Hebrides, August 17, 1773, and a footnote. In which a parallel is ingeniously drawn between human life and that liquor, it ends Say, then, physicians of each kind, who cure the body or the mind, what harm in drinking can there be, since punch and life so well agree? Prophets on the Idler, I. 49 To the Idler, when collected in volumes, footnote. Among the papers of Newbury in the possession of Mr. Murray, is the account rendered on the collection of the idler into two small volumes, when the arrangement seems to have been that Johnson should receive two-thirds of the profits. The idler. Debits, pounds, shillings and pence. Paid for advertising, twenty pounds and sixpence. Printing, two volumes, fifteen hundred, forty-one pounds, thirteen shillings. Paper, fifty-two pounds, three shillings. One hundred and thirteen pounds, sixteen shillings and sixpence. Profit on the edition: one hundred and twenty-six pounds, three shillings and sixpence. Two hundred forty pounds credit, pounds, shillings, and pence. Fifteen hundred sets, sixteen pounds per hundred two hundred and forty hundred and forty pounds. Mr. Johnson to thirds eighty-four pounds, two shillings and fourpence. Mr. Newbury one third: forty-two pounds, two shillings and twopence. One hundred and twenty-six pounds, three shillings, and sixpence. Forster's Goldsmith. If this account is correctly printed, the sale must have been slow. The first edition, two volumes, five shillings, was published in October, 1761. Gentleman's Magazine. Johnson is called doctor in the account, but he was not made an LLD till July 1765. Prior, in his Life of Goldsmith, publishes an account between Goldsmith and Newbury, in which the first entry is, 1761 October the 14th, one set of the Idler, fifty shillings. Johnson, as Newbury's papers show, a year later bought a copy of Goldsmith's Life of Nash. End of He added, beside the Essay on Epitaphs, and the Dissertation on Those of Pope, an Essay on the Bravery of the English Common Soldiers. He however omitted one of the original papers, which in the folio copy is number 22. This paper may be found in Stockdale's supplemental volume of Johnson's miscellaneous pieces, Stockdale's supplemental volumes, for there are two, are volumes 12 and 13 of what is known as Hawkins's edition. In this paper he represents in a fable two vultures speculating on that mischievous being man, who is the only beast who kills that which he does not devour, who at times is seen to move in herds, while there is in every herd one That gives directions to the rest and seems to be more eminently delighted with a wide carnage. End of footnote End of Section thirty nine